Welcome to the Studying the Bible podcast, where every Thursday, pastors Dylan Dodson and Brian Androsian study a book of the Bible verse by verse to see what is being communicated and how we can use it to grow in our relationship with Jesus. We pray that today's podcast can help you grow just a little bit closer to Christ. So welcome back to our online Bible study through the book of Colossians. In this session, we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. Through verse 15. Now, recap from where we were last passage, Paul is talking about how the mystery of God is not something that's meant to be hidden, but has been revealed in Jesus. And so you and I and Paul have a part to play in letting as many people as possible know about the saving grace of who Christ is. It's not supposed to be some some secretive, um, some hidden knowledge, but it's supposed to be well known and that all of us can share this mystery of God's grace in Jesus. It's not supposed to be for just the elites or just for the best or just for the brightest. It is for everyone. And now Paul is going to tell us why he emphasizes so much the fact that this mystery is available to everyone by saying this in chapter 2, starting in verse 4. He says, I'm saying this, again, this idea that the mystery is revealed, so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. You see, Paul here, again, is emphasizing the completeness and the greatness of Christ so that the Colossians and us and other believers aren't persuaded by persuasive teachers that seem to be teaching Jesus plus something. Like, yes, you follow Jesus, but uh, maybe in their context, they still have to follow maybe some of the Mosaic laws. Not that the Mosaic laws are bad, and of course, there's nothing wrong with wanting to follow them, but not because they're going to save you. And so some people might have been saying, hey, Jesus is great, plus do all these things. Or Jesus is great, but also live a certain way in order for God to actually care for you or for his mysteries or his secrets to actually be revealed to you. What Paul is saying is that don't be deceived by these things, that everything is the mystery of God's salvation has been plainly revealed in Jesus. And so follow Jesus, trust Jesus. Yes, live in a way that is worthy of of being called a disciple and a follower of Jesus, but it's not Jesus plus living a certain way that allows God's grace and mercy to be available to you. It's Jesus alone. And then we live in a way that reflects this reality. So don't be persuaded by arguments that sound reasonable. Like, you got to follow Jesus, but do all these other things as well. Don't be persuaded by that. It is Jesus that we follow, and it is Jesus alone that we give our lives to. And then he says this in verse 5. He says, "For, For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. Now, again, Paul is writing this from prison. He can't visit them in person right now. He probably, up until this point, has not yet visited them in person. So he wants to visit them, and he's, although he's absent in body, he's rejoicing to see, again, how well-ordered they are and how, str- how strong they are in their faith. Now, for the original readers, uh, this likely would have brought up a military imagery in their minds. Uh, wo- a well-ordered and strong in the Colossians and us, uh, uh, the Colossians, because that's how they have been uh, conducting themselves, would have brought up this idea of troops in a battle formation uh, resisting an army. And so the Colossians, again, they're growing in their Christ-likeness. They haven't figured it all out. But as we saw in chapter 1, they are, fo- they are following Jesus. They are loving people well. And so they have resisted the enemy. Uh, and so he's encouraging them to continue to do that. Then he says this in verse 6. So then, just as you have received Christ as Jesus as Lord and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me read that again. So, verse 6. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. So again, he says, just as you have 
received Christ, not just, has, not just as you have earned Christ or done something to be revealed this mystery, mystery of, of the gospel, that you have simply received the grace and mercy of God. They have received Christ as they were taught about them, right? Again, remember the gospel here is that Jesus has accomplished everything for us. So we don't have to strive for it. We don't have to do certain things for him to love us. That Jesus did everything, and in him we have redemption. And so we live out what we know to be true. We live out this mercy and this grace that he has given us as we interact with other people. And so that's what he's saying here. When he, when he gives this idea of being rooted, right, rooted in faith, rooted in Christ, it's this idea of like a once and for all secured by Christ. Like Jesus is the root, right? Jesus is the vine. Uh, Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one that we, that we connect to. Uh, he is the one that makes it possible for us to receive God's grace and mercy. And so we stay rooted in him, not in our efforts or in our ideologies. We are rooted in him, and then we are built up by him. Right? And for Paul, this is suggesting continued growth in him and in faith, right? It's not like, well, I decided to follow Jesus, you know, 10 years ago. I prayed a prayer, so I'm good. What Paul is saying is you continue. He is the root, and so continue to be built up. Uh, continue to grow in Christ-likeness. Uh, continue to grow in your sanctification, sanctification which we talked about uh, last time. Maybe another way to put about this, to think about it is this way. Being rooted in Christ is, is kind of like being justified by Christ, that Jesus is the one who, who secured our salvation, who gave us grace, where we are justified in God's sight. We are made righteous and holy, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And so we are rooted and we are justified in Christ. And so because that is true, we want to be built up or we want to be sanctified. And sanctification is, again, just the process of essentially uh, becoming more like Jesus, right? growing in Christ-likeness. And so we're saved, and so let's grow in this knowledge of our salvation. Let's work out our salvation. Let's live in a way that reflects what we know to be true, that we're rooted in Christ, and that we're built up in Him. And so He encourages them to continue to do this. And then He says this in verse 8. He says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. Now, when he talks about philosophy here, uh, he's not talking about like philosophy in the sense of like you and I think of like the study of philosophy and ethics and that sort of thing. Philosophy in the first century was basically the love of wisdom. And so don't be caught up in just the love of knowledge or the love of wisdom. What he's doing here is Paul is emphasizing uh, the pagan religions or maybe even some of the Jewish believers who say that you must do X, you must do certain things in order to gain true knowledge of God, or true approval from God. What Paul is saying is that Christ is over all these things. Uh, he's not, in, in, and there's not any powers or there's not any superstitions that the culture might believe in uh, that, that supersede that, right? Nothing the culture that they believe in or that you and I believe in supersede what Christ has done for us, right? All we, we, what we need is Jesus, not Jesus plus all these other things. And here's why. Here's why. He says this in verse 9 and 10. Here's why we can trust in Christ opposed to tradition and all these other things. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is head over every ruler and every authority. In other words, what he's saying here is that if you belong in Christ in whom God dwells, as we saw in the chapter one, uh, the fullness of God, uh, the entire fullness of God means God's 
full presence dwells bodily in Christ, just like in the temple. God dwelled, his presence dwelled in the temple. Now he dwells all, or Christ's presence now dwells in believers that you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, are like little temples out in the world, bringing God's presence wherever we go. And so if you belong in Christ, then God dwells in you, right? You have already received his blessing. You have received his fullness. And so we share, if you're a follower of Jesus, we share, brothers and sisters, as he's talking about here, in Christ's power and rule over everything. So as he said previously, and as he says here, Christ is the head, which means he has all authority. And so therefore, all other philosophies and power structures can become rivals to Christ in your life, but Christ has no rival. And so you and I can be drawn to certain things, drawn to certain selfish desires, uh, drawn to things that might get us what we really want in life. And so they can, in our minds at least, or in our actions, become rivals to Christ. But in the reality of the situation is they are no rival to Christ, that Christ has no rival in all of these things. And so don't fall prey to all of these ideologies and these things that might sound really sophisticated or uh, might sound really enticing. Don't follow those things, follow Christ, because at the end of the day, uh, Christ actually has no rival, no rival. And then he he continues by saying this in verse 11. He says, you were also circumcised in him in Christ, with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with, him, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. In other words, what he's saying here is he's talking about the practice of circumcision, right? In the Israelites, you'd be circumcised. It was a sign of the covenant. Now what, he, now what he is saying is that this covenant is being transferred or is seen in baptism. And what is baptism? It is the symbolic uh, showing public, uh, it's showing publicly what is true inwardly, that God has taken away the sin and the darkness and the brokenness away from our lives. And he has become victorious, that he is the one that we are follow, that we follow. And so like in a baptism where you are buried in the water and then you are raised, right, in the new, new life of Christ, that is what happens, right? And so remember your baptism, right? If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been baptized, remember your baptism is symbolizing, hey, Jesus is the one I'm following, not all of these other things. So be faithful and follow him. Remember, God raised Christ himself from the dead to prove that he is over everything. There are no powers that can rival him. There are no ideologies that can rival him. And this is what our baptism represents, the truth, the grace, and the power of Jesus. And then he says this in verse 13, and when you were dead in trespasses, And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all all our trespasses. What Paul is saying here is all of us are dead, not just the non-Jews, not just the Gentiles, not just the people who don't have enough money, uh, not just the people who did the really bad things, but all of us are dead. And dead means not just bad, not just bad, but dead. But what happened? But Christ, right? Christ, he has given us forgiveness, and he has given us a resurrection power, and he has given us grace that all of our trespasses, past, present, and future, are forgiven because he has taken what is dead and given it life. He made us alive, not our own effort. And of course, how did he do that? Well, Paul answers in verse 14. It says, he, talking about Jesus again, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. 
So what Paul is doing here as he's taking, or what Jesus has done here is he has taken our certificate of debt or our record of debt. Now, the record of debt was a, in the first century, uh, it, it was a written note of indebtedness, right? Similar to things we do now, except, you know, a lot of it's electronic. A record of debt was a written note of indebtedness that Christ has took it, taken and he has fulfilled our record of debt, that he took it with him on the cross, that he paid for it. It's not that what we do doesn't matter. It's not that if you're a follower of Christ, the sins that you have committed no longer make any difference, but that Christ actually did something with them, that he justified us. He didn't just say, hey, it doesn't matter, but he took the penalty that we deserved because of our sins. And so Jesus has given notice, right? He's even called the king of the Jews by Pilate, right? He has given notice on the cross, He's given notice on the cross of, what, of, of, of taking our record of debt. Now, it's interesting that it was customary by the Romans to state crimes, right? To state the crimes of why somebody was being convicted or killed. Now, of course, if you're familiar with the story, uh, Pilate couldn't really find anything that he did wrong, but the Jews really wanted him to die. And of course, he, Pilate cared about his own political aspirations. And so he gets given the title, the King of the Jews, right? Because what he was saying was Jesus was trying to start an insurrection or a resurrection, which again, an insurrection, which you don't want to do in the Roman Empire. There is one king, and it is not Jesus. But what's interesting, of course, the irony is, is because he actually is the King of the Jews, even though many of the religious leaders didn't want that saying to be put on his cross, it is because he is the King of the Jews that he can save us, right? He became for us what Israel could never do. He fulfilled the law perfectly for us. He is our King. He is our rescuer. He is our redeemer. He is the reason that we can experience the grace and mercy of God because he accomplished for us and did for us and took our sins to the cross in ways that we could never do for ourselves, that he is our substitute, that he is our healer, that he is victor, he is victorious over sin and death. And if you are in Christ, you also get to partake in that victory when Christ returns again. He himself actually is the only one who can save us. And so he is the one that we should give our lives to. So with that, we'll read the last verse of this session, of this section, verse 15, Paul then writes this. He, again, talking about Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. Now, what he's talking about here is the resurrection, right? That Christ is our substitute and our victor over the powers of sin and darkness and death. Now, of course, we know that uh, evil still exists today, but the cross and what it did in Jesus' resurrection uh, shows what public, the public failure of the demonic powers to stop God's plan of salvation, which will be one day fully realized when Christ comes comes again, right? In that moment, it might have seemed like we've got, we've taken care of Jesus, but we know that's not the end. We know that Jesus resurrected on the third day, and we know that he is coming back to one day recreate the heavens and the earth, that Jesus is triumphing, triumphing, triumphing over them, over the powers of evil and darkness and the governments of the world. Right? And so again, what would often be happening here is that the Roman military procession, what he's saying, was defeated by the King Jesus and its spoils are going to be laid out for all to see, right? The Jewish leaders thought they had gotten rid of Jesus. The Romans had thought they had gotten rid of Jesus, but ultimately they will be defeated. We will, all the powers will be defeated and Christ will reign supreme. So again, to close this session, we'll, we'll leave with three quick takeaways from chapter two, verses four through 15. Here's the first one. Number one, Christ has no rival. Again, we've seen this over and over again in Colossians, Jesus, Paul is talking about the supremacy of Jesus. 
He's been very clear in this session, this session that there's no ideology or power or structure that can rival Christ. Now, these things may rival Christ in our mind from time to time, but they don't actually rival Christ. There's nothing like Jesus. There is no rival that Jesus has. Christ has no rival. Uh, number two, we see that Christ is the foundation for everything. He is the Redeemer. We've seen this all throughout Colossians. He is our uh, Redeemer. He is our Defender. Uh, he is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Cornerstone. He is the reason that all of these things are possible. It is not Jesus plus something. It is Jesus alone who does all of these things on our behalf. He is the foundation that changes our hearts and our minds and how we live. Christ is the foundation. And then finally, number three, Christ brings death to life. He brings death to life. In verse 13, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses, right? In the uncircumcision of your flesh. He says in Ephesians chapter two, again, that we were dead in our trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. Christ brings dead things to life. We are not simply bad people in need of healing. We are dead people in need of resurrection. And Paul is talking about the majesty and the greatness of Jesus, that he actually makes that possible. Christ brings death to life. And that is what we see in Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 through 15.